Good morning. Great to see everybody out there this morning. Harvest, we move into a new season. Let me remind you of God's faithfulness. We miss and we will continue to miss Tony, Sonia, and Alistair, and let me just encourage you, continue to pray for them. Pray for their transition. And pray for Harvest Decatur. Pray for the elders as we continue to navigate this new season and seek for what the Lord is going to do. God is good. He is faithful. I'd like to take just a couple minutes and let you know what we're going to be doing here in the next couple of months as far as as from the pulpit. Uh, I'm beginning a new series this morning through the book of Philippians called Joy in the Journey. I asked Brandon to sing that song, House of the Lord, this morning. That'll be our theme song as we sing, as we uh, look through this, this joyous book. Uh, our brother and elder Paul, he's going to be filling the pulpit as well from time to time, and you'll hear from others. God has gifted people in this church to bring the word. He's not left this pulpit empty. So why Philippians. Well, the book of Philippians, you might know this, is a book of joy. Throughout the entirety of the book, just four chapters long, the tone of it is joyful. Paul tells his readers, rejoice in the Lord. As I was kind of thinking through what we were going to do when this time came, uh, George Bennett actually came up to me and said, so uh, what's going to be your first series? I said, well, I've been thinking about Philippians. And he gave me a little smirk, and he said, I think after Ecclesiastes, we need Philippians. (laughs) Joy. What is joy? John MacArthur defines joy. He says, spiritual joy is the deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. The scripture makes it clear that the fullest, most lasting, and satisfying joy is derived from a true relationship with God. The fullest, most lasting, and satisfying joy is derived from a true relationship with God. Harvest Decatur, do you have joy? Do you have joy? Is that relationship between you and God, is it true? Is it satisfying? Philippians is one of Paul's prison letters written from prison, likely around 61 AD during his two-year imprisonment in Rome. He wrote it alongside Timothy, and it was written to the church in the city of Philippi, an ancient city of eastern Macedonia, uh, which today would be modern-day Greece. The city had a close identification with Rome, so much so that it was called Little Rome. You can see it up there on the map. Philippians is full of scriptural treasures. I would bet that many of the scriptures that you have memorized come from the book of Philippians. Philippians is where we find Paul saying, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He also says, I am, he also says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter two, we're given what John MacArthur calls the signature passage on the self-emptying of Christ in his incarnation. 
beautiful passage. In chapter 3, Paul tells us that he counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And we get to chapter, chapter 4, it climaxes with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He tells us not to be anxious because the Lord is near. And then he tells us that whatever things are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, that we should think on these things. So I am excited to be able to share with you the treasures that are found in the book of Philippians and through it all, the theme of joy. But where to start? Let me start by sharing something with you. My wife Heather and I, we love the show Heartland. Anyone ever seen Heartland? If you don't know the show, it's a Canadian show. The main character is a girl named Amy, and she has a connection with horses. Horses who are troubled, horses who have experienced trauma, they're emotionally messed up. They come to her ranch, and she's able to work with them and help them get beyond whatever trauma they've experienced. That's the thrust of the show. But surrounding that storyline is family drama. Heather would tell you my favorite scenes happen around the dinner table because inevitably, someone's gonna say something to hurt somebody's feelings. Someone's gonna say something to tick somebody off. It's awesome. <laughs> Those are my favorite scenes. But why do I bring it up? There's a particular episode where their, their barn had burned down. And because of some trouble with some insurance, they couldn't rebuild the barn. And without the barn, they didn't have a place to put the horses. They didn't have a business. They were looking at losing it all. They were coming back from the hospital, and as they pull into their driveway, the whole town is there rebuilding their barn. And it's a beautiful scene, a beautiful picture of community. Community. What's community? We often think of, of community as a group of people that might live in a particular area, the community of Decatur, the community of Mount Zion, community of Forsyth, community here and there. And that's true, but true community, true community is a group of people that share something. True community is a group of people that are centered around something. True community is a group of people that have a common goal. True community is a group of people around a person. And as we open the book of Philippians, we get a taste of this community, this Christian community that we are to be. Paul writes in Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to begin the series of Philippians with an introductory sermon about the book and what we were going to cover, and I wanted to talk about this, these opening verses. This is Paul's greeting to the church, but I was painfully aware that there were only two verses, and that ma it honestly made me nervous. I thought to myself, we're going to be done in 15 minutes and on our way to Culver's. <laughs> However, as I began to study, began to look in God's word, so much opened up just in these two verses, and I'm excited to be able to unpack these for you. So I want to answer these questions, really two questions wrapped in one. What makes us a community, and how can we have joy? 
What makes us a community and how can we experience joy? So point number one, we are a community because we share a bond of slavery. We share a bond of slavery. Paul opens up and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, servants of Christ Jesus. That word for servant, in the Greek, it's the word doulos, doulos, and it literally means slave. It's one who is solely committed to another. A better translation would actually be the word slave, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. In the first century, Slaves were actually lower than servants. A servant was similar to our workforce today. A servant would be hired. They would come in and they would do a job and then they would go home. But a slave was solely committed to the master. The slave was property of the master. So Paul opens up and he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves solely committed to Christ Jesus. Stephen J. Lawson is a commentator and he writes this, a slave actually belonged to his master like a piece of property. He did not have a life of his own. Further, a slave did not own anything. He was entirely dependent upon his master to meet all his needs. His entire life existed to please his owner. If you think about that definition, that should accurately define us as Christians, as slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy compare themselves to slaves because they are solely, totally committed to Jesus Christ. Paul has no other agenda but to serve Jesus. One other place in the book of Philippians is this word doulos used, and it's used to describe Jesus. In chapter 2, 7, Paul writes, but emptied himself by taking the form of a doulos. Jesus humbled himself by becoming man, but humbled himself further by becoming a slave. He was totally, and by the way, Jesus wasn't just totally committed to the Lord, to God the Father. He was perfectly committed to God the Father. Jesus did what none of us could do in perfectly submitting to the Father's will. He was a slave. He was a doulos, totally through and through to the will of the Father. Just let that blow your mind for a minute that the God of the universe who was there and said, let there be, not only became man, but became subject as a slave. And so if you and I, if we call ourselves Christ followers, we, ought, we should also identify ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. We share a bond of slavery. I said earlier that a community is about a people who share something, a people who have a common goal. How many of you are here it's been more than a few years, it's been eight years now since we bought this property. Yeah, absolutely, many of you out here when we bought this property, and you'll remember, we had to come in here, if you weren't here, we had to come in here, there was old carpet, there were old pews, there, were, there was lots of painting to do, 
lots of painting to do, lots of work to do on this property. But you know, I remember it was a sweet time because we, we came together and, and the, the project of getting this property ready for services bonded us together. We, we became a community in a new way as we were preparing this place to hold services. It was a sweet time. That's what a community does. A community comes together by a common goal. Well, we are a community of slaves to Jesus Christ. And when a people are committed to a common cause, it's a unifying factor. We are unified by the greatest bond in human history. We are unified by the one who caused it all. And that makes us a community. And when we embrace that, when we embrace the fact that we're slaves of Jesus Christ, it's funny, what follows is not oppression, but joy joy. Now, there's something interesting here about this opening. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, there's a word that's missing. It's the word apostle. If you've read the letters of Saul, or, or Paul, rather, you will know that he typically opens by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do that here. Why not? Well, but typically when Paul was writing his letters, he had to defend his apostleship. Typically, Paul had to defend the fact that he was an apostle. See, he didn't walk, you might know this, he didn't walk with the 11 other apostles when Jesus walked the earth. He didn't follow Jesus around like they did. He became an apostle later. And there were many people who attacked his apostleship there are many people who said he's not truly an apostle of Jesus Christ. So constantly, Paul was having to defend his apostleship, so he would open his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't have to defend his apostleship with the church at Philippi, and that must have been a breath of fresh air. In fact, Paul had an affectionate relationship with his church. We see it through the letter. In fact, in the first chapter, we hit verse seven, and Paul says, I hold you in my heart. We hit verse eight and he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is an immensely personal letter. He does challenge him with Christian living like he does the other churches, but he doesn't have the need to defend his apostleship because they already accept him as an apostle. It's an affectionate and personal letter. Where did that come from? I believe part of it came from the start of this church. The start of this church we can actually read about in Acts chapter 16. I'll just give you a brief overview. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16, he sees a vision of a man from the area of Macedonia calling for help. So he and Silas and the others with him decide to travel through the area of Macedonia, and they stop at Philippi. And at Philippi, you might know the story. They walk into the city. Actually, they, they don't even get to the city yet. There's a woman named Lydia who's leading a prayer time with a group of ladies. And Paul sits down and begins to share Jesus with them. Philippi also is the place where Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. Great story. And they sing praises to the Lord in prison, so much so that the whole prison shakes and the doors fly open and the shackles fall off and you remember the jailer wakes up and he's about to take his life because he thinks all the prisoners are gone and Paul stops him and that jailer and his family come to faith in Jesus Christ 
So if you just stop and think about the people that compose, these are the people that compose the church of Philippi, and there's such affection between them and Paul. Also, during Paul's, at one time in Paul's ministry, Philippi was the only church that financially supported him. In fact, one of the reasons why he writes Philippians is to say thank you. It's somewhat of a thank you note for their generous support. So you can see just by these reasons alone, it's a personal letter. It's an affectionate letter. And all throughout it is this beautiful theme of joy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, slaves of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Do you think of yourself as a slave of Christ Jesus, or do you think of him as your genie? Now, maybe we don't actually think that word genie. Maybe we don't actually think that or say that out loud, but we get this flipped in our mind a lot, don't we? How many of you have ever been, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever been upset because your prayers did not get answered the way you wanted? How many times have you been frustrated because your life is not going the direction you think God should direct it to go? When we feel like that, what we've, what's happened is we've flipped in our mind who's the slave of whom. We are the slaves of Jesus. You stop and think about it. He owes us nothing. He welcomes us graciously. We serve him. Now, I know that that word slavery, that, that has some negative connotations to Americans, and I understand that. It dates back to the Civil War and even beyond with, with the abusive uh, uh, time during when African Americans were abused, horribly treated awfully, and so we think of slave, oftentimes our mind goes back to that time. So we might shy away from that word, but, but let's go back to the definition. Don't forget the definition. Solely committed to another. Does that define your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you fully committed to what God has for you? Or are you pushing your agenda? It's so easy. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in an agenda of our own. Even in the church, it's so easy for us to bring in an agenda of our own. I want to accomplish this. And I'm not saying that having goals is a bad thing, but I'm saying this, are you subjecting that to Jesus? Are you pushing something that you want to see happen in your life, that you want to see happen in your church, that you want to see happen in your job, or are you subjecting it to Jesus Christ? Saying, I would like to see that, but your will be done. That's one way that we can accept this bond of slavery. So we as a community... We share a bond of slavery. But secondly, how, what is a community? How can we have joy? We share a bond of sainthood. We share a bond of sainthood. Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, what is a saint? I do not mean Brad Pitt. A saint is simply a holy one, set apart. We are set apart from this sin-stained world, and we are set apart for God. Set apart. Sainthood 
is not something that you achieve. You don't work your way towards sainthood. You don't have sainthood bestowed on you because you lived a life of doing good things. You become a saint simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You become his holy one. The moment that you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, you are identified as a saint. The term saint here was used by Paul in several of his letters to greet the recipients. And in the end of Philippians, he actually uses it as a greeting from the people that he's with. He says, all the saints greet you. So he writes, two saints from saints. You could say that the word saint is a part of our identity. We are saints. Now think about that. I was in a camp one time when the speaker talked about the fact that all Christians are saints, and it just struck me. I was, I was probably junior high age, and I was like, that sounds so weird. Because I know my heart. I know my mind, and I know what the Bible says about me, and there's nothing good in me. How could I be identified as a saint? Ephesians chapter 2 actually clues us into this. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We become saints because of Christ's life. Now, many of you rightly believe that on the cross, Jesus took our sins. Jesus suffered a horrible death on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay. Many of you believe that. But do you know that when you become a Christian, not only do your sins get placed on Jesus, but his righteousness is placed on you. Amen. The righteous and perfect life that he lived is placed upon you. Totally undeserved. But that's what happens. If you stop and think about it, it's the worst transaction for God, right? I mean, this is equivalent to you taking your old, rusty, doesn't even have an engine in it, clunker, to the dealership and trading it for a brand new Mercedes. I mean, no dealer would do that. But that's what God does. He takes your sins upon himself and he gives you his righteousness and that's how he can call you a saint. A saint. Now, why would he do that? Look at, it's on the screen. Look at the verse seven there. Why would he do this? So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He does this because he gets the glory. He does this to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. He does this to point to himself. He does this to accumulate glory for himself, which, by the way, he's the only one that can do that. He's the only one that can righteously accumulate glory because he's God. I can't righteously accumulate glory. If I try, I'm just being proud. I'm just going on an ego trip. I'm just showcasing gifts that God has given me. I don't have it in of myself. God is the only one who could showcase himself and gain the glory and do it righteously 
because there's no one higher than him. He is God. We share a bond of sainthood. Gordon Fee is another commentator, and he writes this. Christ Jesus is both responsible for their becoming the people of God, and as the crucified and risen one, he constitutes the present sphere of their new existence. They live as those who belong to Christ Jesus, as those whose lives are forever identified with Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Paul includes the church leaders in this greeting. Do you see that? Overseers and deacons. And again, that's different than most of the other leaders, or I'm sorry, most of the other letters. He includes this to the, this greeting, he includes the leaders, the overseers and the deacons. Now the overseers, that's just another word for elders there. If our church had existed in the first century, we, our elders in this room might be, have been called overseers. And you know the job of the elders at Harvest Decatur. We oversee the doctrine, direction, and discipline, the leaders of the church. The deacons are those who serve, and they oversee the um, finances, facility, and benevolence of the church. So you look at that. It's a little bit different than some of the other epistles that Paul wrote. Why does he include the overseers and deacons? One commentator pointed this out. No church can rise any higher than the godliness of its leaders like leader, like people. It could be said that the main challenge of Philippians is found in chapter one, verse 27, when Paul writes, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if that challenge is true of a church's leaders, it will filter down to the church's people. So he includes the leaders here. Our leaders need to have a life worthy of the gospel. So let me challenge you, elders, deacons, and I'm including myself, live a life worthy of the gospel. But let's not stop there. Let me challenge you, brother, sister, fellow Christian, live a life worthy of the gospel. So then I would ask, what areas of your life need to step in line with Christ? What ways does your behavior fail to line up with your identity? What ways do your thoughts fail to line up with your identity as a saint? What ways do your actions or your words fail to line up with your identity as a saint of Jesus Christ? Anything even happened this morning as you were getting ready to come here, that failed to line up with your identity as a saint. If so, I would just encourage you, in the privacy of your own heart, to confess that to the Lord. What makes a community? We share. We share a bond of, of oh, sorry. We share a bond of slavery. We share a bond of sainthood. And finally, we share the bond of the gospel. We share the bond of the gospel. Verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, in the first century, it was common to compose letters like this. If you lived in the first century, you would typically, when you started a letter, you would write your name, the sender, you would write whoever you were sending the letter to, the recipients, and then you would write a greeting, usually the word greeting. Most um, letters from the first century have the Greek, it would be the Greek word kerain, which simply means greetings. But Paul Christianizes it. He doesn't write the Greek word kerain, he writes the Greek word charis, grace, grace. The core of the Christian message is grace. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. What is grace? You've probably heard the definition unmerited or undeserved favor. That's good. You could also say divine favor. Grace is the fact that you are favored by God. A.W. Tozer defines grace like this. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. I'm going to read that again. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Josh McDowell actually gives this illustration when, it talks, when he talks about grace. He says, imagine that you dump all your trash on your neighbor's yard. And the next day he comes and he mows yours. That's grace. God treating us as we don't deserve. And that grace, by the way, that's not just a grace imparted to us at justification when we place our faith in Jesus. That grace is imparted to us during our entire life in sanctification. We need God to treat us as we don't deserve every single day of our lives. We need God's grace. His grace is sufficient for whatever trouble comes your way. We run to God for his grace, for whatever we face. Just trying to borrow the whole poetry thing from Tony last week. Go to God for his grace for whatever you face. I'm not the poet. He says grace and peace. Now peace is the state of well-being and it corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom. Grace and peace go together. After all, think about it. If you have God's divine favor, then what follows? Peace. If God looks at you and is treating you as you don't deserve, what follows from that relationship? Peace. Grace and peace. But this word for peace can also refer to relational harmony. Relational harmony. So we're a community. We're a community of people. We're a community of broken people. What should we be striving for? Relational harmony. How can we be a community of joy if there's relational strife? How can we be the favored ones of God and have no peace with each other? 1 John 4.20 reads, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
So let me ask you this. How are your relationships in the church? I heard a pastor say recently that relational conflict in the church is most of the time caused by one party or both believing a lie about the other. Relational conflict in the church is normally caused by one party or both parties believing a lie about the other. Satan loves to work into our minds lies that cause division. So Harvest, I would ask you, what lies are you believing about your fellow brothers and sisters? You might say, well, you know, he's so arrogant. She's so into herself. Maybe there's a grain of truth to that, but maybe you saw something. Maybe they had a bad day. And who's to know what they're believing about you? Are we striving for peace in our relationships. It's interesting. Paul actually addresses something at the end of this book. In chapter four, Paul says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He challenges two women in the church to, to take whatever relational disharmony they were having and put that aside and agree in the Lord. We don't know what was going on in that relationship. They disagreed about something, and Paul steps in and says, no, 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 agree in the Lord. Don't let lies cause relational division in the church. Don't let lies disrupt the community that God has given us. And think about this. Perhaps a reason that you're not experiencing joy is because you're believing a lie about somebody else, and it's fracturing the relationship. So I would ask, do you have fractured relationships in the church? Let me just challenge you as Paul did. Agree in the Lord. Make it right today. And let me challenge you even further. Ask yourselves this question throughout the week. Ask God to reveal to you lies that you might be believing about another. Pray that through this week. See what he reveals to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get community? How do we get to this point where we are a community, a community of joy? There's really only one way. Only one way to have true community, and that's through the one who brings us together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard it said, I'm going to say it again. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It breaks through racial boundaries, cultural boundaries, economic boundaries, and it creates a community unlike any on planet Earth. The way that we are gonna be a community is we embrace the one who brings community, Jesus Christ. Only then will we have grace and 
peace. Grace and peace must be sourced from God. It comes from no other place. And this is not something we can just kind of drum up on our own. It has to come from God. And that's why we have to be a community that shares Jesus Christ. If anything else is at the center of our community, it's going to fail. Divisions are inevitable. Notice what Paul does here. He says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between the Father and the Son emphasizes divinity. God is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God and the Son is God. Right here, just in this short verse, we have evidence of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And from him, true grace and peace can come. This past week, I was listening to a podcast. The host of the podcast is called Dad Tired. My wife actually found this podcast. She said, there's a podcast you might be interested in called Dad Tired. And I chuckled and said, that sounds right. The host of the podcast is a man named Jared Lopes, and he was interviewing a man named Randy Richards, who's written a, written a book called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Richards spent a lot of time in Indonesia, and on the podcast, he shares this story. He says that in Indonesia, in the community that he was in, no one locked their doors. He said, th- thievery was not an issue. If somebody was to walk in and steal my coffee table... Another person would see that and say, what are you doing with Mr. Richard's coffee table? Just thievery didn't happen. So nobody locked their doors. Richard says that he got up one morning and he went to the living room and all the furniture was gone. He scratched his head. He walked into the kitchen where his wife is and he said, um, all our living room furniture is gone. She said, yeah, I noticed that. He said, where has it gone? She says, I don't know. Okay. So he just goes about his day. Later on that evening, a pickup truck with all of his furniture pulls up and some men get out and they begin to unload the furniture and they bring it in the house and they set it back up and they're just going to leave. So he runs back out of the house, chases them down and says, um, can, you, can you tell me where my furniture has been all day? And they said, well, there was a wedding. And we ran out of seating. Said, we knew you were believers, so we knew you wouldn't mind. (laughs) You see, in that community, if you were a believer, you were family. And in that community, what you had materially belonged to everyone. People walk in and borrow your stuff all the time. Now hear me here, because I'm not suggesting, please don't show up at my house and just start taking things. We live in a different culture. I understand that. I'm not suggesting we behave that way. But I am saying this. Look around. This is your community. This is your family. Your family. And we ought to treat each other as such. Why are church hurts so painful? You know, you can be slighted by somebody at work, by somebody in your neighborhood. Something nasty can be said about you by 
so-and-so who lives over there. And yeah, it hurts and it's irritating. It's not that hard to get over. But if you're slighted by somebody in the church, if somebody in the church says something nasty about it, that hurts. When your pastor leaves, why is that like losing a limb? Because we're a family. We're a community. And if we embrace the fact that we share slavery, sainthood, and the gospel, that will make us a community of joy. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, you're so good. We're moving to a new season at Harvest Decatur, but we know that you are in control. And we do look forward to what you're gonna do in the lives of our people in the life of this church. God, we are your servants. We belong to you. We are identified by you. We share Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, teach us to be a community that loves each other. Teach us to be a community that shares. Teach us to be a community that embraces all the gifts you've given us. And from that, Lord Jesus, let your joy flow. We love you. We trust you and we say all this in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.